Hello, you're listening to Health Affairs This Week. I'm Jeff Byers. And I'm Rob Lotz. This is the podcast where health affairs editors get together at the virtual water cooler to talk about the latest news in health policy. Before we dig in, uh, just a couple programming notes. I thought it, we'd take this opportunity to let our listeners know um, that for the next couple of months, we're going to be taking a short break from the latest headlines and uh, go into something a little bit deeper. Yeah, Jeff, to be clear, uh, we will return to the original format in about two and a half months, back to the news and headlines at that point. But until then, uh, here at the beginning of the year, the podcast is going to take a bit of a deep breath to recharge and reset. That's right. But uh, hold on to your hairline because uh, we're not going silent. Make sure that you continue to check this feed because we still plan on serving up some original content during this period, um, like one of these episodes. Rob, can you tell us a little bit about what we have on the docket? Sure. So first, let me start with a reminder for our listeners that Health Affairs Journal will be releasing a special theme issue on the topic of housing and health in uh, early February. And as we prepared and planned for the rollout of that issue, we kept coming back to the idea that many of our readers, especially those from traditional health services research fields, might actually benefit from a bit of a a primer on the topic before diving into the latest research that we'll be releasing next month. Makes sense. Right. Well, as it happens, that is actually something we've been working on for like the last five years. I'm talking about uh, half a dozen health policy briefs that we've been publishing on the topic of housing and health going all the way back to 2018. Oh, so we've been writing about this for a long time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, There's a lot in our archives, and uh, I think it's as relevant as ever. And so we decided to curate something of a podcast mini-series, if you will, Jeff, on the basics of housing and health. Um, We reached out to authors of these briefs, as well as some of the peer reviewers who helped us develop them. And we asked them to join us here in the virtual studio to answer some questions about the basics. That sounds great. Now, listeners couldn't see me, but I was shaking my head uh, in agreement the entire time you were talking. Um, So with that, uh, who's our first guest? Uh, Jeff, I was so excited to talk to Dr. Corianne Scali. Uh, She's a senior fellow in the Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center at the Urban Institute. She started her career as a housing and community economic developer and later led uh, data and research initiatives at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Rural Housing Service. Um, And today she continues to lead mixed method research projects to evaluate program processes and outcomes. Uh, She helped develop some of the original housing briefs with us, and uh, we were just thrilled to uh, bring her back for this conversation. Fantastic. Look forward to listening to it. And with that, let's hear it. Corianne Scali, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So the first health policy brief we published on this topic was an overview of the literature, and it really dug into some of the potential mechanisms or pathways that researchers believe lead from housing to health. Of course, there's not just one pathway, but I'm wondering if you can briefly describe some of the different mechanisms 
by which housing affects health. Housing is foundational to health in many ways. Um, Of course, in terms of its basic function, it's a physical building that offers shelter from the elements and provides uh, occupants a measure of safety and privacy as well. Um, If you step out a little bit, though, you think more about the quality of the home as well, uh, whether there are things like adequate plumbing or adequate heating, uh, whether there might be mold growing in the walls, Um, the conditions of the roofing, of the floors. uh, These things can all, of course, contribute to health conditions. Uh, Also, in terms of where the home is located, can be a central determinant to access to other health supports, such as food, education, jobs, um, parks and recreation, other necessities, amenities that contribute to healthy lives. Uh, Where a home is located also determines exposure to things like pollution and harmful land uses. Housing is really key to uh, stability for individuals and families, uh, both in terms of accessing it as well as it being affordable to the household. Uh, We know that uh, certainly this can affect levels of stress. Um, It can cause folks to make uh, harmful trade-offs. Um, And it can also harm families' abilities to earn the money that they need to live. So housing is foundational to everything from physical safety to access to um, stress. That brief was published in June 2017, uh, which was, it's hard to believe, five and a half years ago. How has our understanding of these mechanisms changed over that time? For example, Um, We have a theme issue coming up on this topic next month, and um, I'm wondering if there are subjects or studies that you expect to see in the issue that would have been unlikely to show up in 2017. Well, I think we've certainly experienced some critical changes uh, in the intervening years. Uh, We've had the pandemic, of course, um, and then also a national awakening to racial discrimination and disparities. Um, as a result of the murder of George Floyd in 2020 and of other Black Americans. Uh, so I would expect to see um, and hope to see research that really interrogates um, our responsiveness to these issues uh, since 2017. Um, for example, in terms of pandemic, I would hope that folks have taken a look at the consequences of things like widespread job and income loss on people's ability to meet their rent and home payments um, and to take a close look at the role of new large-scale eviction prevention measures, asking critical questions like did keeping people housed through eviction prevention measures prevent the spread of COVID? Uh, We also saw some innovations in the ways of meeting the housing needs of people experiencing homelessness in response to the pandemic. Um, And I would hope to see some pieces that uh, take a look at some of these new models uh, and assess how they help to protect the health and safety of these individuals. Um, And perhaps whether these models uh, might be more effective that than what has been used in the past and if they should stick um, into the future. In terms of the equity issue, I would love uh, to see research um, that is focused on the new attention to this issue and investments that have been made in eliminating racial health disparities and making progress in, in things such as closing 
the racial homeownership gaps. Great. So that tees up my next question. Um, There's a whole universe of interventions that aim to get people into stable, affordable housing in stable, high opportunity communities. You alluded to some of them there. And my sense is that the research about what works and what doesn't is pretty robust if still developing. On the other hand, the actual evidence on what works in practice to actually improve health outcomes in terms of housing interventions, that's a lot more sparse. Is that just because it's a newer field of study or are there other obstacles to our understanding? I do think there are quite a few challenges to linking housing interventions to health outcomes. Uh, One of them is the fact that it can be hard to directly connect a housing intervention to a health outcome for a variety of reasons. Um, One is that controlling for all of the other intervening factors that also affect health outcomes is uh, not usually possible. Another is that the pathways that connect housing to individual health outcomes are not always direct. Uh, They can meander through city blocks as well as through generations of families. And so this uh, can make it challenging to understand uh, the pathways uh, between housing and health. And then, of course, some health outcomes can take a long time to be realized, uh, especially if you're trying to look at population-level outcomes. Uh, and this can also make it really challenging to, to connect those dots through robust and rigorous data analysis. A final challenge, of course, is around accessing health data. There are uh, strong privacy protections in place, uh, of course, for medical health information um, and also for trying to collect original health data when doing research. Um, that type of research uh, is subject to the highest level of scrutiny um, in terms of the ethics of, of the research data collection and analysis. Um, and uh, while critical for understanding outcomes can just simply be challenging to collect and analyze. Okay, so let's talk about what all this means in the policy space. You've uh, sort of hinted at that a little bit. I believe the points of connection between health services researchers and housing researchers are pretty rich and direct at this point. But what about policymakers in federal, state, and local governments? How far along are we in sort of seeing an understanding by public officials that decisions made by housing departments are relevant to health leaders and vice versa. I definitely think we've seen increased cooperation. Um, Thinking of the federal level, for example, between different federal agencies like the Department of Housing and Urban Development, Health and Human Services, Veterans Affairs. Um, And I think there are two primary approaches. One of them is blending or linking programs to better connect housing and health services. Um, An example of this is the HUD-VASH program that um, provides both housing vouchers and connection to veteran health services through the VA. Uh, HUD has a supportive housing demonstration that focused on older adults and providing health service access Um, as part of the housing supports. Um, I think the primary approach, though, is through resource coordination. Um, A couple of recent examples focus on resource coordination across housing and services, uh, targeting people with disabilities or older adults 
who are at risk of experiencing homelessness and also Medicaid eligible. Um, of course, a very vulnerable population um, and a lot of uh, time invested in trying to help um, providers and state and local governments understand how to bring um, all of the federal resources at their disposal together um, uh, to support residents. I think the challenges in implementing these types of approaches are that they you know, target these very vulnerable populations who absolutely need supports, um, but they're not available to the general population that might also be struggling, uh, you know, such as families or folks who are, you know, just above the threshold for program eligibility um, or who might be eligible for a program, uh, say, housing assistance that's not an entitlement program. Um, and so they don't receive support despite being eligible. I think the siloed funding streams also get in the way in terms of understanding um, which agency, uh, even which level of government uh, should step in and, and foot the bill uh, versus who might save uh, from uh, the potential intervention as well. Uh, for example, if you're hoping that health will improve, you would expect um, the cost of providing health care to that individual to go down. And so the healthcare system might benefit, um, but perhaps it's another agency or um, that's stepping in to, to foot the bill and pay the costs. So let's do some wishful thinking, uh, maybe with all that in mind. If uh, you could wave your policy wand and change one thing, overcome one of those policy obstacles in order to strengthen the potential for collaboration between housing and health, what would that be? I think in terms of eliminating policy obstacles, that there's a lot of promise in thinking about the way that we provide resources to uh, individuals and families who need them, both to address their housing needs as well as to affect their health outcomes. Um, and I see a lot of promise in providing direct cash benefits to individuals and families. Um, this is because the common denominator for folks who are struggling to find adequate affordable housing and to access needed health supports is often poverty. I think if housing and health policy could align around the goal of eliminating poverty, that we would make more progress, both in stabilizing um, people in homes they can afford, as well as uh, promoting full access to all of the health services, um, medications, and such that they need to live their healthiest lives. Um, well, Corey and Scally, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks very much for having me. My pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with the Urban Institute's Dr. Corey Ann Scally, the first in our five-part series. Tune in next week when we'll talk to Dr. Craig Pollock from Johns Hopkins University. He's going to help us learn all about the low-income housing tax credit. I promise it's more exciting than it sounds. It's a, a lot of really interesting stuff and foundational, especially with its implications for population health. Until then, don't forget to subscribe to Health Affairs This Week, recommend it to a friend, and leave a review. Uh, and one more thing, go ahead and sign up for our newsletters, friends. They're free. They're full of great health policy content um, that you're not going to find anywhere else. 
And it's really the best way to make sure you're among the first to know about upcoming theme issues like February's special issue on housing and health. Until then, take care, friends, and we'll talk to you next week.